what I'm covering in the videos. I'm covering basic doctrine. So for a lot of you who may not have gone through a basic doctrine series or know of somebody who needs to go through some basic doctrine or just need to get refreshed on basic doctrine, that's where we're going to get any basic doctrine for a while is that particular series. So you can watch that. And some of you may want to just videotape it at home. Stick your uh, video cassette in your recorder and tape it for yourself and then use that for uh, friends or family or whomever when, when the uh, time arrives. So, Al. Not yet, no, no, not not the videos. No, that'll be a while before we ever get to any point like that. What we're going to do is have the audio tape, we're going to take the audio track off. In fact, that's one thing we can do with those tapes you have, is we can get one to uh, uh, Jim Sexton, and he can go ahead and take the uh, audio, because that won't change. We had a little glitch. There's a crawl that runs across the screen that gives the address of the church with the zip code wrong. So before I want to expand, I've got to decide whether or not we want to redo the whole thing. These are the details that we fall, fall into here and there. Anyway, this I recall to mind and therefore have hope is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he will sustain thee. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way, thy way into the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Before we begin our study tonight, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship through the use of 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So all we need to do is admit or acknowledge our sins to the Lord in the privacy of our soul for a few moments of silent prayer and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together as a body of believers to have fellowship around your word as we study it. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will make it clear to us that we would have the uh, energy, the concentration we need to focus on the word during this hour and that we can see its application in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we should finish the chapter tonight. No matter what happens, we're going to finish the chapter tonight. A word of warning. We may be here all night. We are studying in a very important section of this epistle. We come down to the last two verses in the chapter and we run into a little bit of confusion because of the vocabulary that is used by translators to uh, communicate this in the English. So let me read the two verses together, and then we will tackle this major problem in the translation of the text. 
If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, for those of you who have been here for any length of time, you know that religion is one of those bad words that everybody just sort of um, reacts to because it has so many different connotations and means so many different things to so many different people. When you start asking people to define religion, the definitions that you get are somewhat vague, evanescent, nebulous. And in fact, to most people, when you hear the word religion, what they think of is something that has to do with sort of any combination of ritual, moral activity, and do-goodism. And we all know, because of the study that we've had in the Scriptures, that those concepts are antithetical to the message of James and to the Word of God. So what in the world is going on here in this text, and why is this word translated religious, and what does James mean? Well, before we translate the word, we have to have an understanding of what James has been telling us in this first chapter, because context is very important to understanding translation. Often you decide whether you want to go with this meaning for a word or that meaning of a word, depending on the subject matter. So we need to stop and look at what James is talking about. His basic theme throughout this epistle is to challenge every believer with the fact that in life we're going to face a myriad of tests. These are, as it were, examinations or evaluations to give us the opportunity to apply doctrine. If you don't have doctrine in your soul, you're not going to pass those tests. If you don't pass those tests, you won't advance spiritually, you won't grow spiritually, and you'll never achieve spiritual maturity. What we're learning in this first chapter is success in the spiritual life depends upon absolute reliance and dependence upon God, exclusive dependence upon God, which is the faith rest drill. That God has provided for us ten different, uh, I'm calling them stress busters, they are various spiritual skills which give us the ability to handle and resolve any problem, any difficulty, any heartache in life because God is omniscient and therefore God has known about every situation you and I will ever face in life no matter how much it surprises us, no matter how much it shocks us, no matter how much it comes, uh, how unexpected it is when it arrives, God knew about it and God made absolute provision for us. The other thing we have learned in this passage is that when we fail, when we refuse to trust God exclusively and we doubt God, as given in verse 6 of the first chapter, that person is double-minded and unstable, that the source of instability, what psychology calls neuroses and psychoses, is really the result of failure to handle life's adversities on the basis of Bible doctrine. So James writes this epistle to teach believers how to handle adversity on the basis of doctrine, and he organizes his teaching around three mandates, which are given in verse 19. But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So when we outline the argument of the book, by that I mean a logical presentation of the doctrine. That's what we mean by argument, much like a, a lawyer talks about his presenting an argument before a jury. There's a logical flow. 
we come to this division in the epistle, which is really the second division, and it is quick to hear. This is the subject of 1.21 down through 2.26. The first priority in this, this entire section deals with the fact that the highest priority in the believer's life is to learn doctrine. If you are going to pass the evaluation, evaluation testing that's going to come your way, then you must make learning doctrine the highest priority in your life. You need to be quick to hear. And verses 21 through 27, that theme is developed under the concept of hearing the word, which entails uh, being in fellowship with God, living in the what we would call living in the bottom circle, putting aside sin, living in dependence upon God, and transforming the thinking by learning, listening to and learning doctrine. Verse 21, we learn that hearing begins with with uh, Confession of sin, and it must have the attitude of genuine humility, authority, orientation to God, and dependence upon God. And that it is the Word of God, and the Word of God alone, that is able to give us life. That is, to save our souls, to deliver us in the midst of trials. In other words, it's the Word of God, and the Word of God alone, that gives us the information we need, and the skills we need, to be able to handle adversity, whatever it might be. The prerequisite for doctrine is confession and dealing with sin in our life. And the prescription is to take in the Word of God on the basis of humility. Then in verse 22, we learn about the priority of of learning and applying doctrine. That if the believer is going to advance spiritually, he must learn and apply the Word of God and not end up deluding himself by accumulating just academic knowledge. And unfortunately... Every believer does that at one time or another. We're all guilty of it, racking up a lot of knowledge about the Bible and confusing that with spiritual maturity. But remember, spiritual maturity is the result of the filling of the Holy Spirit plus understood and believed doctrine or epinosis doctrine. It is not the result of just being able to regurgitate what you learn in Bible class and what some Bible teacher has said. Just because you know the vocabulary and can articulate it back on a test doesn't mean you truly understand the concepts. So we have talked about the prerequisite of doctrine, the priority of doctrine, and then in verses 23 through 25, James talks about the procedure of learning doctrine, and he contrasts the self-deluded believer in verses 23 and 24 with the advancing believer in verse 25. Verse 23 and 24 compares the deluded believer to the person who looks at himself in a mirror. And the Bible is the mirror that we have that gives us an objective evaluation of what's going on in our life and in our soul. This is the process. We have this new diagram here to try to communicate the learning process for doctrine. The pastor-teacher first communicates doctrine. The believer under the filling of the Holy Spirit... Uh, The Holy Spirit then uh, makes the doctrine understandable, and the Bible calls that pneumaticos doctrine. It's understandable to the believer, and and the Holy Spirit transfers it into this outer circle here, which is the noose. The two circles represent the thinking part of the soul, the cognition 
in the soul. Everything in the spiritual life begins with cognition. It doesn't begin with emotion. It begins with thinking. Over and over again, the Bible emphasizes thought. So first, the Holy Spirit makes it understandable. And we, I need to put a V here for volition. Because we have to exercise our volition to think about what is made understandable. We have to think about it so that we truly understand it, comprehend the concepts related to ourselves in terms of our own frame of reference and vocabulary. And then it enters into the noose, that is the uh, outer lobe of the mind, where it is called, the Bible calls it gnosis. This is academic knowledge. Everything has to be understood academically first before it can become usable information. So it enters into this outer lobe, and there it continues to cycle as we think about it. The Bible calls that meditation. And then we have to exercise volition again. I'll put another V here. We have to exercise volition again. Now that we understand what has been communicated, what the Bible says, we have to say, answer the question, do I believe it? Is this what I believe is true about life? And so positive volition at that point is the decision to believe it and accept what the Bible says is absolute truth and the rule of our own life. At that point, the Holy Spirit transfers it into the heart called the cardia in the Greek, lave in the Hebrew, and it enters into the cardia and is called epinosis doctrine. This is usable doctrine. This is the doctrine... That, is, uh, that we have assimilated into our thinking and that we can draw upon and apply whenever we encounter tests. Now, what happens dynamically within the soul, as we accumulate epinosis doctrine, we develop criteria for evaluation. And in terms of the, the analogy, what we have formed within our own soul is a mirror. And that mirror is basically the doctrine that we have that gives us the objectivity to evaluate our thinking and our circumstances and the situation so that we can then, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, uh, draw upon the resources of doctrine stored in our soul and apply the uh, right doctrines to the situation in life. Now, what James is saying here in verses 22 and following is there are some people who are merely hearers of the word. All they accumulate is a lot of gnosis, academic knowledge. They have reams of doctrinal notes in their notebooks. They're always faithful on Sunday morning, maybe not the rest of the week. They know the vocabulary, and to the average person looking at their life, they seem to be pretty squared away. But what I've observed is that eventually what happens is, because God is in the process of testing the doctrine in our soul, according to James uh, one, two through four. So what happens is a certain adversity comes along sooner or later that puts enough pressure on the soul. See, just as when uh, somebody, a steel manufacturer, takes that steel and puts it in under a stress test to find out how much outside pressure it can handle, to see if there are any hidden flaws. Uh, just by analogy, in the same way, God puts us under pressure to reveal those flaws that are there, those flaws are those areas where we're still dependent upon our own ability and our own resources to handle the circumstances in life. And sooner or later, God is going to take his, a child of his and put them under enough pressure to reveal the fact that there's no epinosis there, there's only gnosis. 
And sooner or later what happens is because that individual has been rejecting doctrine for years and years and years, they're operating now on maximum arrogance. They have utilized all the arrogant skills of of, uh, self-absorption, self-justification, and self-deception. They think they know all this doctrine that when this pressure hits, when this phenomenal adversity crushes them, they react, they leave church, doctrine doesn't work, those people are hypocrites, they bail out into emotion, they bail out into religion and all kinds of uh, ritual activities, anything in order to cover up the pain and the misery that is theirs because of this adversity in their life. But they've rejected doctrine for years and now it's finally evident to everyone. And we wonder when we see people like that, they've been sitting there and church for years in Bible class and all of a sudden they're gone and they're out in the boondock somewhere spiritually and we wonder what happened. Well, what happened is all they ever had was gnosis. There was never any epinosis. The epinosis is strengthened day by day as we recall the doctrine that we've learned and we apply it to the little problems, the little adversities that we face. This is what strengthens the soul and builds that soul fortification that strengthens us in the midst of adversity that's based upon the ten stress busters or ten problem-solving devices. The believer that has epinosis in the soul is the believer who is the true hearer. He is the one described in verse 25 as the one who has made doctrine the highest priority of his life. He looks intently. This verb in the Greek means to look diligently at something, to examine it very, very closely, and to think about it. And so he, the hearer is viewed as one who has a certain dynamic in his life, and he is making doctrine the highest priority. Doctrine is more real to him than any experience, any distraction, or anything else in life. And he is not a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, and the result is that he is blessed, he has happiness. Now, this is the third time we've run across the concept of happiness in this passage. Back in chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 2, counted all joy. And then in verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. So happiness comes as a result of learning doctrine, making it epinosis doctrine, strengthening the soul to handle adversities. Now, what we've seen by this brief review is that James is talking about the application of doctrine in this context, isn't he? He's comparing the person who just is who just listens to the one who listens and makes it a part of their soul and applies it, who practices. That's what that word doer means. It doesn't mean to be involved in church activity, to teach Sunday school, to go out knocking on doors, or, or all the various activities associated with religion, such as ritual It is to focus on application, doing what you learn. So James is talking about the application of doctrine. Secondly, James is not talking about religious expression as commonly understood. There is nothing in this context to talk about ritual or to talk about uh, altruism or human good or any of these other things, these good deeds that uh, are commonly associated with religion. That is not in the context. So we've got to ask, what exactly does he mean? Well, the Greek word gives us a little help, but not a lot of help. The Greek word here is the noun threskos. Looks like this. 
in the Greek. T-H-R-E-S-K-O-S. That's the adjective and the noun looks like threskea. T-H-R-E-S-K-E-I-A. Let's see how it's defined by the lexicons. In Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, which is one of the standard Greek lexicons, the word is, uh, threskos is described as religion or religious. The noun is described or defined as the worship of God, religion, but note, pay attention, especially as it expresses itself in religious service. Now, what have we learned from that? Not a whole lot. Still pretty vague. Now we have to ask the question, well, what's wrong with just translating it religion and hope everybody understands what the text is talking about? Well, a term like religion, and we have a lot of terms in the Scriptures that have come down through, through the fact that they're used in the Scripture, and they've picked up a lot of religious baggage over the years. They have all kinds of concepts that have become attached to those words that don't really, that, that take away from its meaning. For example, confession. You know, to a lot of people, when they hear the word confession, they either think of emotion, feeling sorry for their sins, trying to go through some form of penance, going to confessional at the church and confessing to a priest. All this baggage becomes associated with that word, and so you have to take time, as I try to do in most Bible classes, to explain that confession simply means to admit or acknowledge that you have done something. It doesn't include all those other ideas. That's foreign to the concept of confession. Well, the same thing is true about religion. And religion has picked up all sorts of baggage, and has, uh, which includes ideas about worshiping God and general rules of church activity. But the problem with religion is that this is a word that is applied to all kinds of activities, whether it's Hinduism... Judaism, Buddhism, New Age concepts that are so vague and nebulous they're very difficult to understand, or any other kind of ism, all of this, along with Christianity, are lumped into this one word, religion. And that's that's the problem we have, is because understanding the Bible we realize that Christianity is radically different from all of these other isms. What makes the difference? The difference is that religion, all of these other things, from Hinduism, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, whatever it is, all of these are systems of ritual, morality, and altruism which are designed to impress God and to gain divine favor. So all of their adherents are somehow depending upon something they do, some activity, to curry favor with God. Religion puts the emphasis on human activity, morals, works, and human merit in order to gain divine approbation. So religion then is man doing the work, and then God is supposed to bless it. It's not what Christianity is. For that reason, we say Christianity is not a religion, but Christianity is a relationship. A relationship based upon the fact that God did all the work. 
the last thing Jesus Christ said on the cross was to telestai, which, which is the perfect form of the verb teleo, which means it is finished, it is complete. Nothing else can be added to it. God does all the work and man simply receives it or accepts it. The man can do nothing to gain the favor of God. In fact, we saw in our study of Galatians chapter 1 that if man tries to add anything to faith, he destroys faith. And it's no good. So Christianity, therefore, is not a religion. It is a relationship based upon the merit of someone else. Christianity is a system that is exclusively based on the concept of grace. Now, the trouble is that grace has become another one of those words that has a lot of religious baggage. And you can talk to a lot of people in a lot of different denominations, and they're going to talk about grace. They'll call their church grace something something, grace church of Christ, which is an oxymoron. Uh, Many other concepts that they will uh, uh, throw out there. And everybody talks about grace, but they don't have a clue as to what grace means. They have it somewhere, God did something, but we add an awful lot to it. So, Christianity rejects all works, emphasize, true biblical Christianity emphasizes the exclusivity of God's work and that man, if man tries to curry favor with God on the basis of asceticism, mysticism, legalism, works, morality, or any form of ritual, that it absolutely destroys his relationship with God. So then we must come to another factor about religion, and that is that religion is Satan's the greatest weapon in Satan's arsenal. He uses religion to distract people from the spiritual life, to distract them from salvation, and to put the emphasis on their own efforts. He has distracted millions from the true worship of God, and he has been extremely effective throughout the church age in trying to transform Christianity into another religion. Now, when the devil wanted to find a way to try to thwart the plan of God and try to upset God's plan for the human race, he developed the concept of religion. See, most people, when they think of the devil and think of Satan, they think of something very horrible, very ugly, and very, very wicked. Unfortunately, that has little to do with the devil. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that Satan and his angels go about as ministers of righteousness. You see, Satan's greatest tool is human good, human morality. All of the, all of the violence, all of the hostility, all of the crime and wickedness that take place in the world, which is Satan's world, is, is totally against Satan's plan. Satan's plan is to show that he can be God. He can run planet Earth and he can produce a wonderful, peaceful, happy environment in which all the human race is achieving maximum prosperity and achieving their full potential. So the problem is that he's got five billion people on the planet with their own volition, and they want to do it their way and not his way. And so the result of that is that there's violence, there's warfare, there's poverty, all of these things... And, and that's really a testimony to the fact that everything is out of control. It's, out of, it's not in Satan's control. It's out of his control because he wants just the opposite. And so Satan's greatest weapon 
is religion and human good in order to try to promote human ability. Now, let's have a little study of what's happened in, in uh, the history of Christianity to see how human good and religion has entered into Christi- Christian theology and Christian thinking. Now, this is just going to be a very brief overview for some of you. Uh, about eight or nine years ago, I did a conference, taught a conference at Tucson Bible Church on the history of Christianity. There are five or six tapes in that series, and those are available. I had a cop, I had a set, and I put those upstairs. And so, if you want to go into this in detail, you can get a set of those tapes and go through the whole history of Christianity in about five hours, two thousand years. I was really smoking on those tapes. We covered a lot of territory, but we're going to hit the high points. Up till the Reformation, the church is usually, the history of the church is usually divided into two periods called the early church and the medieval church. The early church really begins about 100 AD in terms of plotting it out because the last apostle dies just before the turn of the century. The apostle John died somewhere between 95 AD and 100 AD. And after that, there's no more apostle, there's no one left who has had a direct connection to the inspirational ministry of God the Holy Spirit. All you have is their followers. And it's interesting how quickly things declined. Very soon after that, you have several developments that begin to bring in the whole concept of human work and human effort. First of all, there is the development of what's called the monarchical bishop. Now, you all know what a monarchy is. That's where you have one person that rules. That's why it's called a monarchical bishop, because uh, this was promoted by several people like uh, Ignatius of Antioch and Justin Martyr and several others in between 130 and 175, that first century. And they would go into a town like Antioch, there might be five or six different churches, and before long, and because there was certain uh, persecution and other problems, they developed the idea that one of these guys ought to be elevated as the ruler of the others, that this one guy in town is the uh, major leader of the others, and so rather than having autonomous congregations, they began to unite for various purposes under the authority of one bishop. Now, before long, you had a bishop in Antioch. You had a bishop, let me see if I can remember all the major places. You had, of course, a bishop in Jerusalem. You had one in Alexandria in North Africa. You had one in Rome eventually, but not for a while. That's important to understand. Historical evidence doesn't even mention a bishop in Rome till the end of the second century and in Constantinople. Well, during the first five centuries of Christianity, there were a number of doctrinal controversies that came up. They had, they, they had the New Testament, but they didn't understand it like we understand it. For example, they didn't even have a word for Trinity. It wasn't until the end of the third century that the word Trinitas was coined, for the, for the doctrine of the Trinity, and you didn't even get a clear definition of the Trinity 
until the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. So if you were living in the year 200, you never heard of it. Somebody was mentioned Trinity to you, and uh, Tertullian hadn't lived yet, so you didn't know what that word meant. You had no, you believed Jesus was God and the Holy Spirit was God and the Father was God, but you hadn't really figured out anything. In fact, you were, the, most people were thinking at such a naive, simple level that they didn't even realize that they were having a contradiction that they said they believed in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nobody, it wasn't until about that time that non-Christians started saying, okay, wait a minute, you say you believe in one God, but now you're mentioning three. I don't understand it. And they began to wrestle with the problem of what is the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they began to articulate various doctrines. And uh, over the course of time, then you, after you answered the question, what was Jesus before he came? Then you had to answer the question, what was Jesus when he came? And work out the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Then you had to answer the question, what did Jesus do when he came? And then you get into the whole issue of grace and works. And all these become subjects of various church councils from about 325 A.D. into the uh, 6th century. And at at every stage along the way, one of these guys picks the heretical side. So it's either the Bishop of Alexandria lines up wrong on one controversy, and he's a heretic. Then the the, uh, Bishop of Antioch, uh, 30 years later, lines up on another side, a heretical side, and he's a heretic. And then the uh, Jerusalem is falling apart by this time, and there's not very many people there, and he lines up with the wrong crowd. And then the Bishop of Constantinople lines up with the uh, Nestorians or the Eutychians or one of the other heretical groups that came along in the Christological controversy. And throughout this whole period, one bishop never got besmirched by heresy. And that was the guy in Rome. So now Rome is really taken off. And by 600, you have a bishop of Rome by the name of Gregory, we call him the first, Gregory the Great. And Gregory did not want to be called Papa, the Pope, the Father, but he acted like it. He By this time, Rome had fallen, and there were the barbarians from the north were invading, so he pulled together an army and went out and defeated them. And he organized the church. He was a wonderful administrator. And he developed a new style of music called Gregorian chants. That came out of his time period. And so you see the now all of a sudden you have religion developing under the guise of one central authority figure. Along about the same time in the 4th century, 3rd century to 4th century, from about 200 up to 300, you have the development of monasticism. You see, the major influence, every generation has a major influence that's affecting the church, the thinking of the church at that time period. Today we have, today in, in our generation now, at the close of the century, the influence of, of rel- moral relativism, mysticism, and the New Age movement. These are dominant ideas that are floating around in our culture. And you go out there tomorrow and you witness to the guy down the street... And he suddenly says, you know, you're right. Jesus died for me. I believe that. Well, for let's say he's 35 years old. For 35 years, he's been imbibing the culture of, of America. And this guy thinks in a mystical, emotional framework. 
he has to change that frame. That's hard to do. And the same thing was true in the early part of the, the um, church age because the major thinking in the culture was called Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism was very emotional and mystical. What matters is not what happens on the physical realm, but what happens at a higher spiritual realm. And so that produced a view of spirituality that we call asceticism. Let's get rid of everything we have. Let's give it all up and impress God and go live out on the desert. Maybe we'll be an anchorite, an anchorite like Simon Stylides who would go out and build a, a pillar out in the desert you know, three or four feet high, and then he would sit on it for about a year, and everybody was ooh, impressed. Isn't he spiritual? He doesn't come down off of his pillar well, he survived a year, so he built another one that was about 10 feet high. And then uh, he'd sit up on top of that, and people would just come from hundreds of miles, and they would go on fasts and pilgrimages to watch old Simon sit on top of his pillar. And this went on until he finally got one up around 20 feet high, and he would sit up there, and he would stand up there, and he would give sermons. And this emaciated, otherworldly-looking figure with a long, scraggly beard and long hair fit the ideal of the Neoplatonic world of someone who was in touch with God. And so people would go out there and, and, uh, and listen to him. And this is asceticism. And you have the whole rise of the monastic movement. St. Anthony was the father of monasticism. And he went out in the Egyptian desert. And you have various others. So all of a sudden now, you have the introduction of human works under the guise of, mona- of asceticism and monasticism to impress God with things. And then you started um, having trouble with people understanding grace. And you had a major controversy in North Africa that's called the, the Donatist or Donatism controversy. And this took place in the 4th century in, in North Africa. And what happened was at the end of the Roman Empire, in the late 290s, I think the date was about 295 to 300, there was a major empire-wide persecution, one of the worst ever under um, Diocletian, I believe. And so everybody uh, was afraid of what might happen to them. And they, there were many priests and our pastors and many bishops who just basically renounced Christianity. You're going to throw me to the lions? Oh, no, no. Here, here, I have a, I have a scroll of Romans. You can take that. Uh, I'll spit on Christianity, forget that, and they renounced the whole thing because they wanted to live. Well, after, after Diocletian died, then they got a new emperor in Rome by the name of Constantine. Constantine was trying to pull together power and fight off the barbarians, and at a battle at Milvan Bridge, he had a vision of a cross in the sky and a voice that said, by this sign, conquer. And so he converted to Christianity on the spot. Now, I'm not saying he was a true believer, but we'll just let that go right now. And so he won the battle. So he said, now that I'm a Christian, the whole empire is going to be Christian. So there are no more, there are no more um, uh, persecutions. Well, now, what are you going to do with all these ex-pastors and bishops out there who had renounced the faith? And now they're saying, no, 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 I didn't really renounce it. I'm a believer. I want my old job back. Um, you know, I'm really a believer. I'm really a Christian. I'm not that bad. Well, you had all the legalists who are saying, you know, you lost your salvation here, buddy. 
you're not saved anymore, you can't come back, and there's no way that God can ever forgive you. And this, of course, brings into question the whole issue of grace. And Augustine, as Protestants call him, and Augustine, as Roman Catholics call him, who was the Bishop of Hippo, took a stand for grace that there was divine forgiveness. But this whole issue, or the, one of the major issues in this whole area, is what do you do with post-salvation sins? They had lost the concept of grace by this time, and they realized that from the time you're born until the time you're saved, all of those sins are forgiven. But what do you do with your sins after you're saved? What do you do with all those sins? Well, see, they believed baptism also washed away sins. The physical water was important. So a lot of people would wait until they were pretty old, and then they would get baptized then maybe they wouldn't have too much to answer for. So you have two problems with post-salvation sins or two solutions that came up. And one of these solutions that came up was called penance. And at first they came up with the idea of penance that you could only do it once in your life and you had to go through this process of giving up a lot and go through asceticism and you had to go out and live in the in the desert for a while, and you had to go through all this, this uh, uh, deprivation. And that didn't fly very good because it could only happen once, and then what happened if you screwed up again? So that concept of penance went out, and then uh, another concept of penance was developed by the Irish and Scottish Christians, by the Celtic Christian Church, and it was less severe and had the idea of just going through, giving, paying some money or going through certain religious activities, helping the poor, and if you did that, then you could have, have forgiveness. And that's where the idea of the confessional came from and doing penance and saying Hail Marys and uh, prayer beads and all of this developed in that context, trying to decide what to do with post-salvation sins. But what about the person who didn't have any penance and the person who didn't deal with those post-salvation sins and didn't get baptized? What about him? Well, you can't say he's going to hell. But you can't let this poor sucker get into heaven either because he's got uh, these post-salvation sins that haven't been dealt with. I mean, the literature, they actually say that you have to add to the payment of Christ. You have to do this to pay more for your sins. See, that's the difference between that concept of confession. See, when we confess our sins, we're not paying for anything. We're not doing penance. We don't have to feel sorry for our sins. We don't have to confess God. We don't have to go through any... any um, any kind of machinations in order to uh, get that that forgiveness because at confession, when we name it and admit it to God, we realize that it was all paid for by Christ on the cross and we're not having to do that. So they would go into the confessional. They, they would confess and if they, they didn't do it, then uh, they went to some holding area where they would have to work their way out and you have the development of the whole uh, concept of purgatory. Well, by the late Middle Ages, you have the full development of Roman Catholic theology. And then on October 31st, uh, 1517, a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Martin Luther nailed 95 debating points. That's what a thesis was. It was a debating point on the local bulletin board. The local bulletin board was the front door of the church. Somebody wanted to have a discussion about something, then they would write it out, and they would go nail it on the front door of the church, because then when everybody came, to, came to, to Mass and walked through the front door, they would all read the notice on the front door. 
So he had 95 debating points, and the whole issue for Martin Luther was that as he read through Romans and Galatians, he realized that people were saved, that they were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. So he got it right as far as salvation is concerned. And there were other reformers like John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Henry Bullinger, um, Oculampadius, uh, the Anabaptists, Conrad Grable and Felix Mons and others. And every one of them followed in Luther's footsteps in the gospel. But just like the Roman Catholic Church that emphasized morality and confused morality with spirituality, these guys are doing the same thing. And and they, in the denominations that were founded by them, the Lutheran Church, uh, Calvin uh, founded the Reformed Church, which would be the old Presbyterian. Now, anything after 1900, forget it. Because most of these major denominations were so influenced by liberalism that by 1900, they weren't what they were the centuries before. So you have the Reformed Church, which would be Presbyterian churches and Congregational churches. Then you have your, your Baptist denominations. And uh, by the time in America comes along in the early 19th century, you get the impact of revivalism and you get Church of Christ and various other odd denominations. But even if they got it right at salvation, so many of these groups, the Christian life or sanctification always comes through works. You do something. There's this emphasis on ritual, this confusion of morality with spirituality. And then the 19th century comes along, and you have the rise of liberal Protestant theology. At the very core of liberal Protestant theology is the rejection of the supernatural, the, the idea that God has actually intervened in human history and spoken to man objectively. They reject all of that. So the fundamental bias in all liberal thought is an anti-supernaturalism. They operate almost exclusively on rationalism, empiricism, or a combination thereof. They reject total depravity. Therefore, man is not inherently bad. He's basically good. And if you remember reading various authors in early American, 19th century American literature in college or high school, that was a major theme that so many of them, uh, uh, Thoreau and Emerson, and, uh, emphasized in their writings was, was the inherent goodness of man. So there's a rejection of total depravity. If man is not inherently a sinner, then Christ doesn't need to die as a substitute for his sin, does he? So Christ's death is not a substitutionary atonement anymore. It is given an example. So you have man's not totally depraved, so there's no total depravity, and um, there's minus total depravity, and there's no substitutionary work on the cross. There's just a moral or example view of Christ. He was a good man. He lived up. He had the courage to live up to his ideals, and he died for it, and you should too. And if you stick with what you believe, whatever that is, then, then you'll make it to heaven also. Jesus showed us how. Just stick with it. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Then you have a rejection of the Bible. There's no, the Bible is man's record of his own experiences, his own religious experiences, and has nothing to do with the uh, uh, objection.
of God. So they reject the Bible as being the Word of God. Fourth, there's a rejection of sin, condemnation, and divine judgment. So they reject divine judgment. In fact, everything is just rosy, and we're going to be very uh, optimistic about the future. So whether you were a believer or unbeliever or whatever, you were basically buying into a view of, of, uh, of history that was post-millennial. That man, because we're basically good, is going to follow this example of Jesus in solving social problems like the abolition of slavery and, and uh, uh, child labor and prohibition of alcohol and all of these social sins that we're eventually going to uh, get rid of the ills of society and bring in a perfect government and a perfect country. And so you have the influence also of socialism comes in at this time. Utopian socialism has its impact. And we're going to bring in the kingdom. Now, all of this is to say that the modern concept of religion is this. It is do-goodism. It's we're going to get out there and do good things for society. We're going to correct social ills and social problems. And by doing so, we're going to impress God and we're going to make our country perfect and we're going to bring in a perfect society. That's how people think, uh, what they think of as religion because that is what has happened historically and how we got to where we are today. Now, I've gone through this because I want you to understand the history. History is very important. History is how we got to the mess we're in so that we can have some kind of discernment as to what's going on and how to get out of it. Now, when we come to our passage here, we've had to go through this because whenever you read this or anyone reads this, most of us have been so affected by our culture that we're going to completely misapply and misinterpret this passage because we don't understand we're thinking of religion like this because this is what our culture has always said about religion and so when we come to this word and we see it in the English everybody's going to say oh number one if you're going to be really religious and do good you're going to watch your mouth and number two you're going to take care of the sick and the elderly and the orphans And you're going to do all this good work. You're going to go out and find orphanages. And you're going to take in foster children. And you're going to go down to the uh, seniors at the retirement home. And that's what Christianity is all about. And I've got a commentary on my desk at home. It's a very scholarly commentary in the Greek written by a professor at an evangelical college. And that's basically what he says. If you don't do that, then you will not go to heaven. So this is not just something that I'm making, fun, making up, but it's something that is the dominant view of understanding passages like this. But this word, threskos, does not mean that concept of religion. What it means is the outworking of your belief in God. Now, that may work itself out in terms of personal worship. That's one concept of the word. But when we take it in terms of the context of what James is telling us, I think that the best way to explain it is if anyone thinks that he is applying doctrine in his life. 
That's what James means by threskos. If anyone thinks that he is applying doctrine in his life. So you're, you have here, this is the negative. This is the person who's the hearer but not the applier. And James is going to expose his emperor's clothes right here and say, okay, here's a condition. First class condition, maybe he is, maybe, maybe not, but, but if he does think that he is applying doctrine, if he thinks he's applying doctrine, James is going to give us a little test. This is a, how doctrine gives you that mirror to perform objective self an objective self-evaluation to determine if you're applying doctrine or you're just accumulating notes. If anyone thinks that he's applying doctrine and yet does not bridle his tongue, okay, sins of the tongue come in. If your understanding of doctrine isn't having some effect, and he just uses sins of the tongue here as a representation as a, to represent all categories of sin. But apparently sins of the tongue were a problem with these people because he's going to devote an entire chapter uh, coming up to sins of the tongue. So apparently they had a problem with sins of the tongue. So James is saying, if you think that you are applying doctrine and you're not controlling your tongue, the term bridling, a bridle fits over the muzzle of a, of a horse, and fits the, the bit fits inside the mouth and puts pressure on those soft, tender parts of the mouth. And so when, when a horse wants to go one way and you pull on that, that, that's very uncomfortable and pulls his head around so he goes in the other direction. That's how you control a horse. So the whole metaphor here is that of self-control. Now, if you were to look, we're not going to take the time, but if you look, were to look over in Galatians chapter 5, verses 21 through 23, which lists the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, one of the productions of the Holy Spirit in the advancing believer's life is self-discipline, self-control. And James points it out here and applies it in the area of the sins of the tongue, that if you are not controlling the sins of the tongue, in your own life, then you are deceiving yourself. You're not learning doctrine, you're not applying doctrine, and you're not going anywhere. So we have to look at the doctrine of the sins of the tongue. Point number one. The sins of the tongue, like all sins, emanate from the sin nature. Look at our diagram of the sin nature. Lower part of the diamond, we have our area of weakness, which produces personal sins. Area of weakness is the source of temptation for the soul. It is volition that causes you to sin when you acquiesce to the temptation, which comes from your area of weakness. Then you're thrown into control, and you're, you're uh, now produce human good. Human good is the source of all religious activity, not Christianity. Personal sins, though, come in three categories. Mental attitude sins, such as worry, fear, anxiety, hatred, envy. Sins of the tongue. Sins of the tongue include gossip, maligning, maliciousness, lying, perjury. All of these are sins of the tongue. And then the production of overt sins, such as uh, stealing, murder, 
adultery, immorality, all of those are overt sins. James is using the sins of the tongue just as an illustration of all the other categories of sin, primarily because it's one of the most difficult areas we will ever face in terms of self-discipline. That's why he picks on sins of the tongue. If you can control your tongue, James says later on, then you can control, have self-control over every other area of your life because the tongue is the most difficult thing to control. So the sins of the tongue, like all sins, emanate from the sin nature. Psalm 34.13 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Point number two, sins of the tongue are sponsored by mental attitude sins. Sins of the tongue in one sense are overt. Sins of the tongue and overt sins all derive originally from mental attitude sins. Psalm 5.9, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part, that is the inward part of mental attitude sins, is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Point number three. Of the seven worst sins, well, let's count them out. There are seven, there are six things which the Lord hates. Now, God's going to give us a list of the seven sins He abominates. How many do you think you would get right on on ones you abominate? Listen to God's priority list. Haughty eyes, that is arrogance, that's a mental attitude sin. A lying tongue, that's a sin of the tongue, that's one sin of the tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, that is an overt sin of murder. A heart that devises wicked plans, that again is a mental attitude sin of an of a inclination towards evil and evil machinations. Feet that run rapidly to evil, that has to do also with a mental attitude, wanting to do evil, being very willing and open to, doing, to committing sin. A false witness who utters lies, that's our second category, that's perjury. And one who spreads strife, that's creating gossip and maligning someone and causing division. So three of these seven sins in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 are sins of the tongue. Point number four, sins of the tongue produce triple compound divine discipline. This is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Let me put that up here. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Do not judge lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now let's see how this breaks down. First of all, a sin of the tongue is always, always is initiated by a mental attitude sin. So first of all, you're going to have divine discipline for the mental attitude sin that underlies the sin of the tongue, whether it's arrogance or anger, hostility, revenge motivation, vindictiveness, whatever it is, it will begin with a mental attitude sin. So you will have divine discipline for the mental attitude sin. Secondly, the sin of the tongue always maligns someone, judges someone, or gossips about someone else. And you will receive divine discipline for the sin of the tongue. Do not judge lest you be judged. And then, third you will also receive the punishment that would that goes with the sin of the of the guilty person so you receive theirs 
that same punishment too for whatever sin that is. So if someone is uh, committing a sin of, let's say, uh, adultery, and you run around telling everybody that they're an adulterer, you're not only going to get uh, discipline for the mental attitude sin because you're out to get revenge, you're going to get some discipline for maligning them, and then you're going to get discipline, their discipline for the adultery they committed. Now, that doesn't mean they're getting off scot-free. Okay, remember that. Just because you commit some sin, don't go around praying that somebody will run you down, malign you about it to take your discipline away. God doesn't work like that. They're going to get discipline for that, and you will too. Just because they screw up doesn't mean you're going to get away with it. God will take care of that. The Supreme Court of Heaven will not overlook it. Point number five. The continuation of the sins of the tongue can produce enough callousness and hardness of heart to eventually result in the sin unto death. So if you continue without rebound, without confessing your sins, then the result eventually will be that you will be taken out as a believer under the sin unto death. Point number six. God both protects and blesses the believer who is victimized by the sins of the tongue. Job 5:19 through 21. From six troubles he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. In famine he will redeem you from death. And in war from the power of the sword. You will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. Neither will you be afraid of violence when it comes. Now that doesn't mean it's not going to happen to you. That means that when somebody takes it upon themselves to run you down, to gossip about you, to spread the public lie about you, to malign about you or gossip about you, you have the resources to be protected. God will deal with them. The Supreme Court of Heaven has not overlooked the fact that they are doing this at your expense and God will take care of them and there will be divine discipline in their life. It is, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It is not up to you to run around and try to correct everybody. You keep your mouth shut, focus on the Lord, and keep going forward, and God will deal with it. It is not up to us to run around and justify our actions, especially if somebody's running us down. We just go forward. If it happens to be in a situation where you're involved in a in an employee situation, somebody lies about you, your job's at cost, and you can legitimately defend yourself just as you would in court. But it's not your job to run around and attack the other person because they're attacking you and try to straighten out all the problems they've caused. So God protects and blesses the believer who's victimized by the sins of the tongue. Seven, the believer can actually lengthen his life and find greater happiness by avoiding sins of the tongue. Psalm 34, 12, and 13 says, Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. That's Psalm 34, 12, and 13. You can lengthen your life and find greater inner happiness by avoiding the sins of the tongue. Eight, troublemakers are always characterized by sins of the tongue. Those people who come into a congregation start stirring up controversy, stirring up trouble, are always characterized by sins of the tongue. Romans 16, 17, and 18 says, Now I urge you, brethren... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts 
of the unsuspecting. Point number nine, control of the tongue is a sign of maturity and the fruit of the Spirit. James chapter 3, verses 2 through 13. Control of the tongue is a sign of maturity and production of the Holy Spirit. James 3, 2 through 13, and then verse 10. Since the sins of the tongue can destroy a congregation of believers, it is a responsibility of the pastor to constantly warn against that and to bring correction when it gets out of hand and when necessary. 2 Timothy 2, 14 through 17. So verse 26 gives us the negative. If anyone thinks himself to be applying doctrine and yet does not exercise self-control on his own tongue, he's in, he's in arrogance, he is deceiving himself, and his application of doctrine is worthless, it's fraudulent, it's in vain, it's empty. He's not applying doctrine at all, he's just deceiving himself. In contrast, we find the successful believer who's advancing to spiritual maturity described in verse 27. This is pure and undefiled religion. Now, the word for pure should be an adjective that is fairly familiar to us. It is katharos. K-A-T-H-A-R-O-S. And it's related to the verb katharizo, which means to cleanse, and is the word that we find in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse or purify us from all unrighteousness. So, pure application of doctrine is preceded by the use of 1 John 1.9 to guarantee that we're under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit and producing divine good and not human good. This is pure and undefiled, and here we find one of those fun little words that I always like to find in the Greek. It is amiantos. The A is negative, just like the UN in English is negative. Amiantos. A-M-I-A-N-T-O-S. In the ancient world, they often used the streets and the gutters as their sewer, raw sewage just ran out in the streets, or they would dump the chamber pot over the balcony out into the street. And if you were walking along and this happened, then you would be splattered by the contents of the chamber pot. That is being defiled. That is miasma, and uh, or miantas. And so here we have amiantas, which means not defiled. And see, the contents of the chamber pot, spiritually speaking, it's what sin is. And it defiles us and it keeps us from God. It grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit. So amiantos means that we have been cleansed and that we are undefiled. That it means we are forgiven and we're advancing in the spiritual life. So this is application of doctrine that is purified and is uh, in, from being in fellowship with God. That is, it's undefiled. So it is pure in the sight of our God and Father. And there's two applications that are given. Number one, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. This is known as compassion for others, showing mercy, and that is all part of grace orientation. So it's relating to widows and orphans, those who are going through financial distress, family distress, other types of adversities, now listen, what are we talking about in this, in this whole chapter? 
We're talking about believer. This is what you and I need to do when we encounter tests and trials in life. And what happens when things start really going bad? Who do we start focusing on when we're out of fellowship? We get into the arrogant skills and we become self-absorbed. Boy, everything's going wrong. And we start whining and crying to everybody we can about how tough life is. And then we say, but, but you know, I'm trusting God. Because we, we, we want to fool ourselves, but we want to whine and cry about it a little bit and groan and complain, but that's a sin too. And we get our attention on ourselves and we forget that there's a lot of people out there who just have it a whole lot worse than we do. We stubbed our toe, but they're having a leg amputated. And that's the point in this, is that if you are following the precept, back in verse 21, to be receiving the word in humility, which is grace orientation. Humility does not think more highly of yourself than it ought to think. Humility is not self-absorption. Then what we're talking about here is an application of humility. An application of grace orientation. If you are really advancing in the spiritual life, then when you're encountering these tests and trials, you're not going to become self-absorbed, but you're still going to pay attention to the problems that other people have, showing compassion and mercy because of the resources in your own soul. If you do not have resources, if you are spiritually bankrupt, and there's no doctrine there, then what's going to happen when you go through hard times is you can't see past your hard times to help, to help anybody else in their hard times because there's nothing left in your bank account, spiritually speaking, to draw on. So an application of doctrine is visiting orphans and widows in their distress. Now this is not the do-goodism of religion. Do-goodism of religion says you go out and you take care of the hurting people and you take care of the sick and the AIDS victims and you create all of these other things, something for the alcoholics and and something for the orphans, and you do all this because you're just trying to help society and solve social ills. The, the act itself may not be any different. It's the rationale that underlies it that's different. It's why you're doing it. It's your understanding of reality that's different. And that understanding of reality is what the Germans called a Weltanschauung. I read that word all through college and, and every time I had to stop and think about it. It means a world view. You're, that, that big picture that you have within which, that frame of reference that you have within which you integrate everything. Now earlier I talked about the fact that I used the illustration of the guy down the street that you witnessed to and he becomes saved. But this guy's grown up in a world dominated by emotion by the New Age movement, and by all kinds of ics, and spasms in the religious world, and he's bought into everything. Now what does the Bible say he has to do? He has to completely renovate his thinking. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to the world. See, this is the world view, this entire system of thinking that he has. Whether he's thought it through logically and systematically or not is irrelevant. Most people haven't. They just have this odd conglomeration of ideas and opinions and views on life that they've just picked up here, there, and yon because it sounds good, it fits, it makes them feel better, but it has nothing to do with logically adhering together. 
And now he has to renovate this. Do not be conformed to the world, which is the whole system of human viewpoint thinking, but be transformed by the renovation of your thought, by renewing your mind. That means you now have to develop a whole new system of thinking based upon divine viewpoint precepts, and you have to learn to challenge all of your human viewpoint concepts, ideas, opinions with the divine viewpoint of Scripture. And I don't like doing that any more than you like doing that because we're comfortable often with our human viewpoint concepts. And so we would rather try to have the Scripture say it's okay to be emotional or it's okay to be um, this way or that way rather than no, I've got to change not only what I think but how I approach life. And that's why James concludes by saying keep oneself unstained by the world. Human viewpoint has all kinds of techniques and skills and suggestions for how you can handle the problems and heartaches and difficulties of your life. You can go to a psychotherapist. You can go to counseling. You can order some tapes off of uh, one of the uh, advertisements on television. You can call a 1-900 number. You can do all kinds of things and get in touch with the local psychic or astrologer to tell you everything is going to be okay in your life. You can come up with all kinds of things that are going to make you feel better and alleviate the pressure for a while, maybe for a few days or even a few years. As one person once said, you know, when somebody comes into me for counseling and I ask them what they want out of life and they say to be happy, and I say, well, what do you think, what really makes you happy? He said, well, you know, I really feel good when I'm sitting out in the backyard with a couple of good looking women and six pack of beer. He said, well, great. Why don't you go get on a plane to the Bahamas, get a bunch of women, a bunch of beer, and just go have a good time? But if your goal is to glorify God, then it's not going to be very easy. See, we think somehow the spiritual life and the Christian life is going to be easy, but it's a, it's a hard life and it demands thinking, concentration, because we have to get rid of all of our human viewpoint notions and replace them with divine viewpoint notions notions, and then we have to apply that divine viewpoint to the problems of life so that we can advance. And that's why James says that it's so important to listen, make learning doctrine the highest priority of your life so that you can apply it and keep yourself unstained from the thinking of the world. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture that helps us to understand the importance of Your grace, that our relationship with You is based on the fact that You have done everything, that Christ paid the price completely on the cross, that it is uh, by grace we have been saved and not on the basis of works, and that over and over again through Scripture You emphasize the fact that, that grace is the solution and not human works, that it is not religion in the sense of ritual, mysticism, emotional feeling, or anything else. It's not trying to curry favor with you, but it's to recognize that you have done everything for us. Now, Father, help us to remember the things that we have studied, to think about them, and to reflect upon their application in our lives through both our thinking and our actions. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.